it is always a privilege to open the scriptures together as a congregation and be instructed from the word. We will be in Psalm 51, uh, but before we turn there, let me just give you a brief update about our return to Malawi. I was middle of June that I gave you guys an update about how ministry was going in Malawi and told you that we were anticipating returning to Malawi at the end of July or the beginning of August. Here we are, the end of September, and I'm still with you. So uh, what are we waiting on, uh, and what's that look like, and how can you pray? Well, two things we, we've been waiting on. Number one, Malawi has been closed for uh, passenger flights, so there's no way to get back in. Um, that changed, we thank the Lord, in September. This month, that's changed, and they're now beginning to allow some flights. It's spotty. They only go occasionally, but... Uh, That's still theoretically possible. So the only holdup now is we need to get our passports renewed. They actually still have a couple years of life on them, but because of the nature of the flight we returned on, we need to get them renewed. It's confusing, but um, but because of all that, we uh, that's that's what's holding us up. So uh, right now, the standard process of renewing those passports is extremely backed up. but the, renew, uh, the expedited renewal option is what we're waiting for. So they're currently in phase two of reopening the passport services, and uh, they need to get to phase three, so they bring about the expedited renewal. So you might consider just praying that that would happen sooner rather than later so we can get those passports renewed and return to Malawi to continue ministry there. Also, I assume most of you know about what we do in Malawi, but if you don't, and if you're interested, we do have some little brochures that are in the, uh, the missions corner here of the foyer. So you can go over there and pick those up. It also includes a link to sign up for our newsletter updates. Um, shows, so shows you there some ways you could pray for us, uh, ways to give if you're interested in that. So uh, if you're interested, feel free to pick up one of those. All right, well, grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. It's a couple of years ago now that I was, I found out something I, I have since discovered is common knowledge, but it was new to me. And uh, it struck me as being surprising and thought-provoking, and that is that during, in the 16th century in England, those who were uh, part of the Reformation, separating from uh, the Roman Catholic Church, they regularly, uh, the, the language that the historians use varies, but traditionally, consistently, it was a pattern. As they were going to their execution, they would be quoting Psalm 51. That surprised me. I don't know why, maybe it shouldn't, but why Psalm 51 on such an occasion? I think what initially struck me most about that is, maybe it's just reflecting my own heart, but I I have no idea what that would be like to go to the stake, but I would imagine here are your persecutors. You've probably debated with them. This was over theological matters at this time. Um, And you know, you're convinced in your heart that they're wrong and you're willing to die because you aren't willing to comply, uh, particularly related to the Mass um, and the Eucharist. Surely, you must be tempted, this is at least my thinking, with some measure of self-righteousness. I'm the one who's taking a stand for the truth here, and they're the ones who who aren't standing for truth and are actually oppressing, persecuting those who are standing for the truth. 
And again, maybe just reflective of my own wicked heart, but there'll be some sense of, well, what am I doing at this time, like confessing my own depravity and my own sinfulness? That would seem to almost be a capitulation of sorts. But they weren't bothered by that at all. They were, they were happy to own those realities. And as I looked into this a bit more, that's what the historians seem to agree on. The reason it was so popular among these martyrs, some of them under Queen Mary, some of them under others, was because they believed it well encapsulated the core tenets of the gospel. Number one, the pervasive sinfulness of man. And number two, that man can, can depend only on the mercy of God, entirely apart from any of their own merit. So it's a fitting way to, to, to go and to, to continue reciting that. But wow, what a display of humility. Even as we think about that, though, as, as we think about how these men delighted in that psalm, this psalm, in their life, and were willing to have it on their lips in their death. Uh, May that profound testimony cause us to pay careful attention this morning. A testimony like that, that they gave their lives for the truths found in this psalm compels us to think carefully about what's in this psalm. Well, I trust you have made your way to Psalm 51 now. Please follow along as I read it. I actually begin just a little bit before verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you are making me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered 
on your altar. Many of you are probably familiar with the historical background to this psalm, but I'll briefly recount it. If you're interested in reading it in more length, you can find it in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. There's a battle going on, and many of the men of Israel are away, fighting that battle on the king's behalf, but David is back in Jerusalem. During that time, David steals the wife of one of those soldiers who's away fighting on his behalf and sleeps with her. The man's name is Uriah. The soldier's name is Uriah. The the wife's name is Bathsheba. Then she becomes pregnant, and he uses multiple attempts to try to cover this up, none of them successful. So David tells his general, Joab, to put Uriah on the front lines and intentionally to pull back the other soldier so he's exposed in the front and struck down. And so it happens. David then, with the husband out of the way, takes Bathsheba now to be his wife. And the Lord sends a prophet, Nathan, to David. And the prophet comes and shares a parable with him. He says there's a rich man, and this rich man has huge flocks, many, many lambs. And there is a neighbor, he's a poor man, with one dear lamb. He treats this lamb like a daughter. And one day, that rich man decides he wants to slaughter a lamb. And he doesn't take a lamb from his own large flocks, but steals the one lamb from his poor neighbor and kills, slaughters that lamb to eat it. David's indignant. This is injustice. That man must die, David says, as he's being told this this story that he's about to find out is a parable. And at that point, Nathan throws back the curtains and says, you are the man. You have stolen another man's wife, despite the fact you have many wives. And Nathan then goes on and it helps David process this recounts of what, here's what happened from the Lord's perspective. And according to the narrative, David says one thing. I have sinned against the Lord. So that narrative is what forms the backdrop to these events. When the psalm begins, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, it reveals that what we're seeing is David's response to that confrontation. And as this psalm has been passed down to us, first in use in Israel and then inherited by the church, it's functioning as a model, a pattern, for a right way to respond to sin. Now before we move on to verse 1, I, I just find this interesting that what we, what we find happening here, this confrontation from Nathan and David's response is helpful at one level in the sense that it, it confronts some of our most frequently used excuses for not confronting a brother or sister in sin. And one of the most frequently used ones is, they know better. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not they don't know what the Lord expects. They know better. And they're just hard-hearted, stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked. They, they aren't changing. 
So my bringing it to their attention isn't going to help that at all. All it's going to do is destroy my relationship with them. So why would I do that? You sympathize with that? Have you ever used that? At some level, though, it misunderstands the means the Lord sometimes chooses to use to, to bring conviction to a sinner. In this case, Nathan could very well have said that. David didn't know better. And David was continuing right on, not too concerned about it, apparently. But the Lord was pleased to use that confrontation to convict David, to break down his obstinacy. And we see, because of that, a model for dealing with sin. So just as a small implication, I would encourage you, how do you think about confrontation? Confrontation is a means the Lord has prescribed to be able to call back erring brothers and sisters. And it's a gracious gift, not something to be despised. And I don't know what what Nathan and David's relationship was like after this, but I trust that it was probably a sweet relationship. David was probably tremendously grateful to uh, Nathan for his kindness in uh, bringing this to his attention. So the Psalms intended to function as a right pattern, a pattern for a right response to sin. So we might summarize this psalm by saying that it gives us three steps of a model response to sin. Three steps of a model response to sin. Number one, we'll find in verses 1 to 9, a plea for personal forgiveness. Number two, a plea for personal transformation. That's in verses 10 through 17. And number three, a plea for cosmic resolution. That's in verses 18 to 19. Now, this psalm doesn't have a really neat, clean structure. So my outline might suggest it's a little bit more easily divided up than it really is. But generally speaking, uh, references to forgiveness do cluster in those first nine verses. And references to some kind of personal transformation, change, generally cluster in the next eight verses. So, jumping into verses 1 through 9, the first model, or first step of this model response to sin, the plea for personal forgiveness, we find that David begins verses 1 and 2 by just simply petitioning the Lord for mercy, to forgive him. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Notice where David goes initially. David's made a mess. There are all kinds of places he could go as he responds to having been convicted of his sin. But where he goes first, I think, is indicative of what he understands to be the the most foundational problem created by his sin. And what is it? Well, look at what he says. Be gracious, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. The the most foundational problem is that he has separated himself from God. He has offended a righteous God. What do you generally think of as being the most foundational problem created by your sin? 
Is it shame before others? Is it a guilty conscience? Is it the consequences you yourself have to bear or consequences you require others to bear because of your sin? But according to this passage and the whole Bible, the most foundational problem caused by sin is that it estranges us from God. It alienates us from God. It makes us enemies with him. Sin defiles us, and the Lord can't be relationally near to us, and that must be dealt with before that can be restored. And in biblical categories, that kind of relational distance is is terrible. That's judgment. We see this throughout the Bible. Think, for example, in the garden. Because Adam and Eve sin against the Lord, they are removed from the Lord's presence. See this later? The Lord chooses to use the tabernacle and later the temple to be the point at which sort of heaven and earth meet, where God comes to dwell with man. And the whole Levitical system is sort of one way in which that's made possible while man's still sinful and God is absolutely righteous. But even with that whole system, Israel's sin reaches a point where, as Ezekiel records, the Lord leaves the temple. He no longer dwells among them. And we see the same theme come up again at the end of the Bible. When all of that is fixed, when God again dwells with man, as it was intended to be at creation. So on an individual level, David's aware that he has sinned against the Lord, and he needs that defilement removed, and these requests convey that. Now, why does David think such a request is reasonable. Think about what he's asking. Think about all we just said he, he's done. Stole a man's wife, killed that man, committed adultery. Brought other people like Joab into complicity with that. Why would he think it's legitimate to ask the Lord to just forget that? Act like that didn't happen. Wipe that all away. Well, he tells us, and this is important for us, because this goes at the heart of what keeps us from coming to the Lord in confession. Look at verse, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God. And then what does he say? According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, Blot out my transgressions. That's why he thinks it's legitimate to ask this, because of what he knows to be true about the character of the Lord. According to your loving kindness, essentially, that's be gracious to me according to the measure of your disposition to help those in need, even when they have no basis to demand that help. And according to the greatness of your compassion, this word for compassion is similar to other words that suggest it. It means like the compassion of a mother for her child. And notice it's not just that compassion that the Lord has for sinners, but it's the greatness of that compassion. So why does David think it's reasonable to make such a request? Because David knows, and because David believes, that it is the character of God to forgive Yes, God is a righteous judge. That's why we need forgiveness. If he wasn't, we wouldn't need forgiveness. 
we would carry on without forgiveness and no problem. But what we need to get from this is that he is not stingy with forgiveness. He's eager to forgive, and he forgives liberally. Do you know and believe that to be the character of God? We must. It's our only hope. If God will not forgive, we have no hope. Now let's move on to verse 3, where we see David now transition from praying for pardon, for forgiveness, for, for cleansing, to confessing his sin. Essentially, David, why do you have to do this? What are you asking God to cleanse you from? Well, now he's going to explain. He's going to confess his sin. And we're going to find that in verses 3 through 6, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Just look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. Wow. Does that not resonate? That's a burdened conscience. We can sympathize. We know that experience, don't we? My sin is ever before me. David's willing to own this. Look back uh, at the second half of verse 1. I want you to notice the personal pronouns he uses with regard to his sin. The second half of verse 1. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. That's genuine confession. David doesn't distance himself from his sin. He's owning it. He's willing to say, that, that's mine. I'm responsible for that. So this, this experience of knowing your sin, I know my sin, it's ever before me. How do you view that? The conscience is an interesting thing. Depends upon how we look at it. Are we biblically informed or not? From one angle, it's a terrible thing. The conscience is the sinner's worst enemy. It's like the, the accuser that never leaves them alone. And, and with time, they can muffle it a bit. But wow, what a dreadful enemy to the sinner who wants nothing to do with transformational repentance. But from another angle, from a biblical angle, what a wonderful thing. What a kindness of the Lord do you embrace the sounding of your conscience as a kindness from the Lord? A kindness for him not to leave you in your sin, comfortable there. A kindness not, or to not allow you to forget about your sin and move on without having dealt with it. There are many ways we try to deal with this. In fact, in some ways you could probably almost describe global economies in terms of trying to deal with consciences and silence consciences. One of the ways we try to do this is busy ourselves, distract ourselves. I mean, it's proverbial, right, about lying down at bed at night and not being able to sleep because your conscience is bothering you. So one way is distracting our minds. And I might encourage you just to ask, could you maybe be guilty of that and not be thinking about that? Are you content to be alone, in the quiet, 
with nothing but your own thoughts? There's a busyness, a restlessness that's just simply an attempt to distract ourselves from our guilty consciences, though we likely don't think of it that way. There are many ways that we try to distract ourselves, but I want to encourage you, your conscience is not something to be evaded. It's to be appreciated and embraced, especially when it's informed correctly, and it will be your ally in bringing attention to your sin, convicting you of sin, so that you might confess it and be forgiven of it. Simply acting as though there is no sin is not the solution. Well, it is the solution if you think the most foundational problem is some sort of internal discomfort, some kind of lack of emotional wholeness that your sin causes. But if the most foundational problem is enmity with God, silencing your conscience and not dealing with your sin is the worst option. But in this, that that requires that you go the right course to deal with it, which, as we're seeing, is to confess our sin to a gracious God and to receive forgiveness from him. And doing that requires that we believe the Lord is full of loving kindness and compassion. So that's that's a crucial key to dealing with guilt correctly, believing that God is kind and allowing that to invite us to come to him in confession. Then David moves on in his confession in verse 4. David says, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only, I have sinned? Excuse me, David? No, 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 David. You didn't only sin against the Lord. Where do we begin? You sinned against Uriah for one thing, you sinned against Bathsheba, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. What is David doing? David trying to minimize his sin, focus only on a certain part of it. No, David's getting at what we already began to examine in those first two verses, that sin is first and foremost against the Lord. And we've got to get that because it so affects our thinking. Let's not quickly pass over this. Sin of every variety. I say every variety because there are sins that humanity generally is willing to say, well, well that's not affecting anyone. Don't, don't give them a hard time about that. And then there are other sins that everyone's going to recognize, yeah, that affects other people. We cannot let people do that. Like murder, right? So take any variety. Take murder as the case scenario in your mind, which is the most obviously against other people. And even that one, as we see in this text, because that's the example, is not first and foremost against other humans, but against God, this model of David and his confession tells us. How well we can accept that largely depends upon what I call our worldview, our theology. How do we view creation, everything that is? Do we view the universe primarily as centered around humans. Humans exist, and they're at the center of the universe, and God exists for their good. God blesses them. God makes them to prosper. Or is God at the center of the universe? And humans are created for him, to honor, to obey, to serve, to enjoy him. Now, when you present it that way, Kind of like a Sunday school question, right? Everyone knows the right answer. It's clearly not the first one. Of course, it's God-centered. 
But we often operate as though it's the former, as though the world is centered around humanity. What are some ways this affects our thinking? This thinking that sin is first and foremost an offense against other humans, and that's its primary problem, rather than recognizing it's first and foremost a sin against God. Well, just a few case scenarios to help you see how this is significant. I can't take time to go into this too far, but just a few that might press you to realize how this is relevant. Is the biblical teaching that those whose sins are not forgiven will suffer eternal conscious torment? Is that too harsh? I would say it depends upon your worldview. If humanity is at its center and God exists for their good and sins are primarily against other people, then the, the seriousness of the crime is based upon the, the value of the one against whom you've committed that crime. So if, if man has sort of a, a finite value and worth, then the punishment seems it should only be finite. But if the sin is first and foremost against an infinitely worthy and holy God, then Eternal conscious torment is entirely consistent, entirely appropriate. Here's another way that you can apply this much more practically, not with your theology, but with your parenting. When your child sins against one of their siblings, do you go immediately to deal with the horizontal relationship, reconciling that, or are you helping them to realize that their sin is first and foremost against God, and that that's first and foremost where they need reconciliation? This affects how we think about the mission of God and flowing out of that, the mission of the church and of individual believers. Is that mission primarily mitigating the harmful effects of sin on humanity? If sin is primarily against other people, then of course it is. Examples would be giving primary attention to things like alleviating poverty, stopping human trafficking, Ending abortion. In a human-centered worldview, yes, that is the mission, to alleviate the effects of sin. The primary problem with sin is the effect it has on other people. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The foundational problem is man's sin against God. And all of those things aren't unrelated, but they're secondary. They're consequences of that primary problem. Therefore, Our task is first and foremost to apply the ultimate remedy to the ultimate problem. The ultimate remedy? Man's sin against God. That man has been alienated from God. The ultimate solution? Reconciliation. That man can be reconciled to God as he follows this pattern. Here in Psalm 51, confessing, throwing oneself fully upon the mercy of God for forgiveness. Let me add a caveat less lest that seem too black and white, by all means, exercise a faithful presence in the world. Do good along the way. Even be intentional to do good along the way. But don't lose sight of the ultimate problem and the ultimate remedy. In the second half of verse 4, David then says, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Here's looking at what he can claim because of what he just confessed. Because, I've, because I'm guilty of all of this sin, 
I declare the Lord is righteous in the consequences he brings. He, he delivers a guilty verdict. That's right. This is another aspect of true confession, biblical confession, being willing to embrace our guiltiness in God's verdict and the consequences of that. Then moving on to verse 5, we find David write, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Here David continues his confession, but zooms out a bit to consider his sinfulness more generally. He's not talking here about the sins of his mother, but acknowledging that his sinfulness extends to the very beginning of his existence. Note the intensification here. The first half of verse 5, behold, I was brought forth, I was birthed in iniquity. In the second half, in sin, my mother conceived me. Birthed in sin, what's even more? Conceived. He's going back to the very beginning of his existence. From that very time, David says, I've been a sinner. There's this force of sin, the sinfulness that pervades us, that's something more than simply the sum of all of our individual sins. That's what David's getting at here. This verse communicates the extensiveness of this sinfulness. It does it on one axis, as it were. I think David probably believes it's, it's extensive on all levels, but he, he emphasized it by going back to the very beginning of existence and showing how extreme it is along those lines. So we must acknowledge the comprehensive nature of our sin as modeled here for us. Our problem is not just any one act of sin or even a countable number of sins, however numerous they might be. Our problem is that as humans, after the fall, we are sinful through and through. Then verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. It's difficult to know what this verse means in the flow of the thought here, but it seems like it's, it's now reflecting on the confession as it brings the confession to a close, and it is it's just giving commentary. He's essentially saying, That what he's just given is the kind of confession that the Lord desires. The Lord desires truth or truthfulness or honesty about what is in our hearts. And then in the second half of verse 6, the Lord gives us insight. That is, he helps us to discern what's within. So David's saying, through all this process, particularly Nathan, but the Lord is helping me to see what's there and confession is being honest about that. So that brings us to the end of the confession, and then David finishes this first portion with verses 7 through 9, in which, where he returns basically to the concept of forgiveness and highlights some of those things. Um, first of all, verse 7, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. This hyssop here would have been like a bunch of foliage. Think of like a bouquet, but not flowers, or like herbs, something like thyme or oregano, they'd be cut off, bound together at the stem, and then the top portion of it could be dipped in water, it could be dipped in blood, and then used to sprinkle or to apply that water or blood for ritual purification purposes. This is a category, a concept that have been very familiar to Israelites who are going through the Levitical sacrifices in that process. 
David, of course, isn't asking God to do this literally, but he's using a known construct that refers to cleansing from defilement to, to communicate to God what it is he's requesting. He's asking God to cleanse him from his sin, to forgive him. And then the second half, he uses a different metaphor, that of laundering clothes, washing clothes. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And notice with both of those how the second half goes. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David has a confidence in this method, in this model. When you go and confess your sins to the Lord and plead with him for forgiveness, it's not simply a flip of the coin. Which side of the bed did the Lord wake up on today? No, there's confidence. This is the character of the Lord. If, you will, if, if I come to you, you will forgive me. Then in verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Here he looks ahead in anticipation and praise for the thing that will result from the forgiveness. The joy, the excitement. The broken bones here, it's, it's almost certainly not literally broken bones, um, probably just metaphorical for inner turmoil. However, there is a, can I say, a psychosomatic dimension here where what's going on within us has physiological outworkings. Just because you have a physiological problem doesn't mean that it's entirely physiological. Sometimes that begins within. And so it could be that David really is ailing, becoming weak, physiologically because of the inner distress. So there might even be a level of that. But what David communicates is that he is crushed now. He is brought low. But if the Lord will forgive him, that will be turned 180 degrees. There will be joy. And then verse 9, he finishes this first portion by saying, requesting, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. That first portion is interesting. Hide your face from my sins. Think about what he's asking. Lord, you who know all things, see all things, choose not to see this. But just a profound way to acknowledge, like, the Lord doesn't have to do this, but it's the Lord's pleasure and delight to do this, to, to engage David as though there is no sin. It seems conceptually similar to the thought of removing sin as far as the east is from the west. Wow. What a model for dealing with our sin, this plea of personal forgiveness is. Fully owning our sin, not just individual sins, but our pervasive sinfulness. It's kind of the first part of this plea for personal forgiveness. Throwing ourselves fully upon the mercy of God by pleading with him to forgive and I might add to that, I think it's coming out of the text, though, doing so confidently, confident of forgiveness, because we know his character. As Exodus 34 says, he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the first step of this model response to sin is a plea for personal forgiveness. Now we continue to the second step, a plea for personal transformation in verses 10 through 17. David begins with a, a strong plea in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now he's 
looking beyond, and he's saying, this forgiveness is great, but I don't want to continue to commit these same sins. I'm appreciative for the forgiveness, and I'm going to continue to depend upon that, but oh, I long to be transformed. I long to be changed. I long to be renewed, and that's what he's asking. David looks forward to and wants a transformation that will fix the problem at a heart level. What David requests here is radical in nature. This isn't simply some self-reformation, cleaning up your life. This is a work the Lord must do for us and in us. Note that while David trusts in the boundless mercy of the Lord, he doesn't presume upon it. He doesn't just say, well, I don't need to change. I'll go on sinning, and the Lord, for his part, he'll go on forgiving. No. The person who experiences this kind of forgiveness hates sin and doesn't want to return to it. There is an important difference between, number one, knowing that we are sinful through and through and will continue to need the Lord's mercy, number one, and number two, presuming upon his mercy, continuing to pursue sin with abandon. There is a very significant difference between those two And I will venture to say that the person in that second category who's presuming upon the mercy of God, claiming that they're being forgiven while pursuing sin with abandon, knows nothing of the forgiveness of the Lord. In the second half of verse 10, David prays the Lord would renew a steadfast spirit within him. This just refers to an inner man that's steady and consistent, not wavering, not waffling. He wants to keep the commandments of the Lord. He wants to be faithful in the way of the Lord. And then verse 11, do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He's wanting to maintain that restored relationship with the Lord. I will make one comment. This text, this verse is pretty obvious, except that it may cause confusion as though we could lose the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in that statement where he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It's important that we understand this request in its old covenant context. The Spirit came upon David at the time of his anointing for kingship. And it came upon him to empower him to do that work. We see this throughout judges. Judges are anointed. Saul received this anointing of the Spirit. And then, actually, from the same time, that David receives it, it leaves Saul because of Saul's habitual disobedience. He loses the kingship. So David has an up-close and personal look at what can happen from one's own sin. And David's requesting that the kingship not be taken from him, or at least God's empowering presence to do that work in the way the Lord would have him to. So this is not teaching that a new covenant believer, those of us who are trusting Christ now in this age, may lose the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because of sin. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. It's just the joy that comes from knowing that the biggest threat to you has been dealt with. In this case, it's the opposition of God. It's been removed, dealt with thoroughly, and the threat is gone. 
And then the second half of that verse, sustain me with a willing spirit. David asked the Lord to support him, keeping him from sinning, keeping him from falling into temptation again by giving him an eagerness, an enthusiasm even, for obedience. And now in verse 13, he shifts gears a bit, and now he begins to talk about what he's going to do, how he's going to respond in gratitude to this work the Lord is doing in him. But still under point number two, a plea for personal transformation. This would be a part of that transformation. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. David, a sinner who has received the forgiveness of the Lord, is eager to declare this to other sinners. And interestingly, David's fulfilling this very vow in writing Psalm 51. And even this morning, we are being instructed in this way, this way of the Lord's forgiveness, through this model. I find this interesting just because it's something we know, but sometimes act as though it's not true. This is the way, essentially, the gospel has always gone forward through the years. Not because people who needed no salvation pass on that good news to others, but because sinners, and not just small sinners, but those who are pervasively sinful as all humanity is here, as it's laid out for us, have known the forgiveness of the Lord as they've confessed and depended upon him, and they proclaim that to others. So do not allow you to think that to do that would be hypocrisy. Sharing the gospel just because you're a sinner doesn't make you a hypocrite. I can, I can imagine saying, imagine us saying, I can't share the gospel with others because I'm a terrible sinner and I have no standing before God but for his mercy. If he looks approvingly upon me, it's only because he's overlooking so much of what I am, all of my sin. Who am I to proclaim this good news to others? And yet, this psalm would say, yeah, yeah, that's exactly the kind of person the Lord uses to proclaim this way of repentance and receiving forgiveness. Look at verse 14. Verses 14 and 15, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. David recognizes he deserves to die for his sin. But as the Lord delivers him, he is eager to praise the Lord for this deliverance. And in this section, part two, point two, the, the, uh, the second step there ends in verses 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's here explaining why he's going to respond to the Lord's forgiveness and transformation with what he's just said, proclaiming this way of forgiveness to others and praising the Lord with his lips 
as opposed to using, say, the sacrifices for Thanksgiving prescribed in the law. Why would he not do that? This can be kind of perplexing. This is the first verse. I mean, surely the Lord did prescribe that. Is it that the Lord, back in Moses' day, said, oh, I want all these animals, and then he at some point said, I'm kind of tired of that. I don't want any more of them. What's going on? This is not the only place we find this. The prophets regularly make such statements. The point is the Lord doesn't The point is not that the Lord doesn't delight in sacrifices under any circumstances, but that they can easily become a substitute for a broken and contrite heart, rather than what they're intended to be, which is a demonstration of a broken and contrite heart. What the Lord's really concerned about, what he's really looking for, is a broken and contrite heart. As David tells us in verse 17, the sacrifices of of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's humility. That's a posture that recognizes we can do nothing to help ourselves, but we are totally dependent on the mercy of God. So not only does this model response teach us there is hope for forgiveness— but also that there is hope for transformation, hope for genuine change. And having considered those first two steps of a model response to sin, we now look at verse, or I mean, uh, step three, a plea for cosmic resolution in verses 18 and 19. Look at verses 18 and 19. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. With these verses, the psalm shifts gears with a bit of a jolt. It's jolting because we've been focused in, looking narrowly on David specifically, his sin, his restoration, and now we're panning out, zooming out, putting the wide-angle lens on, and looking more generally at God's purposes for Reconciling all things to himself, renewing creation. By anticipating a time, most of what we've most of what we talked about this morning has been fairly simple. This one's a little bit more difficult, so at the last bit here, I'm going to ask you just to pay careful attention to try to understand how these verses relate to what precedes and how we ought to respond to them. By anticipating a time when the Lord will delight in sacrifices. David is looking forward to a time when not only is there material prosperity and security for Jerusalem, but a time when there is a qualitative spiritual transformation of the inhabitants of Zion, such that the Lord can unqualifiedly delight in the sacrifices because there will be no hypocrisy. David's looking forward to something beyond anything realized in the days of Solomon Though Solomon built up the prosperity of Jerusalem, Solomon built up the walls of Jerusalem. David's looking beyond anything realized in the days of Nehemiah, who of course rebuilt the walls. David's looking forward to a reality that is yet future, even for us. So, verses 20 and 21, this last portion, they add to what we've already seen, the model for personal dealing with sin, they add to that a model for longing for and praying for the full fulfillment of the Lord's promises. 
in the terminology you see here, the Zion theology, we might call it the eschatological Zion. From another angle, we might think of it sort of as the new creation. When God's promises reach their consummation, but not everyone inherits those promises. No, the Lord is preparing a people for himself, a renewed people, to inherit those promises and to dwell with him on a new earth. Who are those people who will inherit those promises? They are the people who are being forgiven and transformed now as they deal with sin according to the model put forth here in Psalm 51. It's a wonderful model. It's our only hope the Lord be merciful toward us. And not only that he'll be merciful toward us now and we'll receive kind of that objective forgiveness of our guilt before the Lord, and secondly, that we'll be transformed, kind of what we might call the process of sanctification, but in some ways, if I can simplify it, at the very end here, we look forward even to glorification. When all of these problems are finally dealt with and sin is no more. How gracious of the Lord to deal with us in this way. As we close here, let me just read to you from another, a portion of another Psalm of David that so helpfully highlights the, the character of God we've already seen. But I want to leave us on this note because this is so crucial. We believe the Lord is a forgiving God if we're to follow this model. I'm just going to read to you from Psalm 103 and begin in verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this, your character. We have no right to demand this forgiveness, and yet you are so gracious in freely dispensing it. I pray, Lord, for us that we would be those who would follow this model, who would come to you to confess our sins and throw ourselves fully upon your mercy, just trusting you to forgive us as our only hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would please stand, we'll sing a song of response to the Lord.